0: Welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. Hey, welcome to Church at The Well. If you're just joining us, we are in a mini-series that we are calling Resilient. Uh, This idea of being able to, when we go through hard times, and hard times that seem to last for a long time, that we would be able to be resilient through them and after them. And maybe that for you is the pandemic that has gone on for a long time. It's been hard. Or maybe it's something you've been through personally in the past, something you're going through now, something someone you love is going through. And we said last week when we talked about what resilience is, we can have this idea that resilience is just being able to get through something hard. But we said that's probably not enough because maybe you've experienced this in your own life or you've met people like this. It's possible when you go through something hard to become someone hard at the end. And by that, I mean someone who is hardened, someone who's cynical, someone who's bitter, someone who's angry, someone who's detached. Um, And we all said, no, we don't want that in our lives. In fact, resilience, when we admire it in other people, we meet people who've gone through hard things, what we admire about them is not just that they survived something, but that they have become more of a beautiful person. They've become more compassionate, more understanding. They're a good listener. They're honest. They're real. They are um, you know, they have a humility about them. That's the aspect of resilience that we walk away from and think, man, I'd like to be more like that, <laughs> right? If you meet someone who's gone through something hard, but they've become cynical and angry and bitter and detached, you, you don't go, oh, I wish I was like that, Um Uh, You want something more. You want to become someone. And so we said, yeah, resilience is not just getting through something hard. It's becoming someone new. We said, we all need that. We all want that. (laughs) We all want resilience. We just hate what it takes to get it because it means you have to go through something hard. And I was thinking that the area, probably one of the areas we most want and need resilience in is in the area of relationships. To be able to... um, In the relationships we have with the people close to us over a long period of time, when we go through something hard together to become someone new and something new together, it's like, yeah, that sounds beautiful. (laughs) But I think the reality is it seems to be getting harder and harder to be resilient in our relationships. And, and there may be lots of reasons for that, but I kind of came up with three isms that I think are working against us being resilient in relationships. Um, that, the first ism is idealism idealism, you know, in a sense, we live in a world that has romanticized relationships. And I don't just mean romantic relationships, although most certainly the world we live in, romantic comedies and all of that stuff have idealized romantic relationships that we will find the one. And when we do, we will fall in love and everything will be great. And it'll be happily ever after. And all of the movies usually end right before the ever happily ever after. We just assume that's how it's going to be, but no one ever sees it, but that's what we're told. And, or, if it doesn't work out, we've even romanticized the idea of, oh, we move on. We let go. Wasn't that fun? We had good times. We're still friends on Facebook. All of that. We can even romanticize the breakdown of long-term romantic relationships. But even the idea of family and we're going to get married and have a house and have 2.2 kids and we're gonna, we are going to romanticize that and everything will be great. We are idealistic even about church. We say, oh, this is a group of people because they love God, because it's a church, because it's a faith community. They will will be gracious. They'll be loving. They will accept me. We'll agree on everything. We have the same beliefs. It's going to be perfect. Idealism is a big part of our Western 21st century mindset. And it's working against resilient relationships. Not just idealism, but individualism. Julie Beck, who's a senior editor and writer for The Atlantic, recently wrote an article called Love in the Time of Idealism. And she referenced two different uh, psychologists and sociologists' books that they had written and two different dynamics, uh, both in terms of individualism that are working against good long-term relationships. She said, and um, in, in she referenced one psychologist book, Cheap Sex. He said, because of the availability of sex uh, outside of marriage for everyone, whether it's even in real relationships or even in pornography, that people, men especially, are less likely to want to get married because they don't need to get married to have sex. And so they delay it or they avoid it. And so they're actually less likely to commit to long-term relationships. She said that's one dynamic. And the other dynamic, uh, someone noted this idea of individualism, even in our pursuit of marriage, that marriage has become just another arena for self-actualization like I get married in order to improve myself, in order to become my true self. If I find someone, it's someone who's going to help me become all that I was meant to be. And so there's an individualism uh, primary lens that say even marriage and long-term relationships are about me. So not just idealism, but individualism that the world is about me. And thirdly, tribalism. Maybe this one is a bit harder to understand, it's certainly not new, but tribalism is based on the idea that uh, I need to, and I can find my tribe. And my tribe is a well-defined circle, yeah, um, uh, of people, a group that I belong to, where there's a shared set of values, shared set of beliefs, shared set of sort of moral code, shared set of understanding and familiarity. And we are all the same. We have everything in common, people just like us, and we have our tribes. And sociologists note that tribalism is not new. We have always, in a sense, looked for that. Where is our place in the world? They said, we actually get a a good degree of peace and internal happiness when we find our tribe, which makes sense. There's nothing wrong with that. But what they said is, when we live in a world that is defined by tribes and we look for that tribe, the more we find that group that is exactly like us, that identifies us, that agrees with us, where we have all the things, we think the same, we act the same, and we, we shared values, and yes, you're just like me, you think like me the differences between people outside our tribe begin to be magnified. And if you add the technological revolution that we are living in, it is easier than ever to find people who are exactly like me, that agree with me. It's easier than ever to find my tribe. And what that has done is actually increase the sense of polarization or difference with people outside the tribe, people who don't think like me. And we can always find someone who does. And these three isms, I think, are killing our ability to be resilient, to stay and work through something hard in our relationships. Idealism says, I don't expect to encounter difficulty and conflict in my relationships. It shouldn't be there. I expect them to be good and easy. Individualism says, when I encounter something hard, I shouldn't have to put up with this. This is not making me happy. Idealism says I don't expect to. Individualism says when I do encounter, I, don't, I shouldn't have to go through something hard. And tribalism says I can always find someone who thinks like me. These things are actually working against our ability to stay and persevere through the difficulties in inevitably that inevitably come up in long-term relationships. And yet, here's the truth. The resilience that we want the very thing, the very situ- where the situation, the very person, relationship we want to run away from may be, in fact, the very place that we are going to become more resilient people. Not just get through something hard together, but to become someone new. It's interesting when you read the scriptures uh you know my youngest son uh one of his friends wanted a bible his friend doesn't sort of have any kind of faith background and grew up in the church and he gave him the bible and after a little while he said to him man this people this bible they do some bad things like i think he was expecting to read sort of a book of like very wonderful people and heroes and and he was noting just the relational chaos in this one character's life and it's like yeah the bible is very familiar with conflict and hard times in relationships within marriage, within families, within friendships, and within communities of faith. The Bible is not unfamiliar. It is very real and saying this is inevitable in relationships of love, within marriages, within families, within uh, friendship, and within the faith community. And yet the Bible continues to echo this theme that in these very places of conflict holds the opportunity for us to become new people something that in uh, in recent months that has become sort of a regular fixture in my family's life is watching this mini series called The Chosen. And it's one sort of a uh, writer's take on what it was like for these this first community, or we call them disciples of Jesus that were first being formed, really in, that became the first church. But this community of people who gathered around Jesus, chosen by Jesus to come into his inner circle, and what their lives must have been like. Now, some of the story is based on fact that we know from the gospel, the history writers. Some of it is based on the cultural context of the Greco-Roman first century Near East. And some of it is just this person's sort of creative uh, license and saying, what might it have been like in their worlds? One of the things that has stunned me as I've watched it is, I, I, I should have known this, but I never realized, how diverse, like this was not a tribe that Jesus was forming. They were a diverse group of people. And because of that, there would have been some friction and some conflict as they were trying to figure out how to do life together. And one of the most talked about episodes and scenes actually was when some of this conflict amongst them reached a- ahead, particularly between Peter, one of Jesus' disciples who was Jewish and Matthew who was also Jewish, but Matthew was a tax collector whose life and profession had made life very hard for many other Jewish Jewish people. They were considered traitors. And I want you to watch this scene as some of this conflict because of their differences comes to a head in this group of uh, Jesus followers, this group of disciples.
1: What about you? What do you mean? Has it been difficult for you all this time? Occupation, following Jewish law. My life has not been easy. Oh. oh, it hasn't. What was more painful for you? Escaping Roman persecution by working for them or escaping your guilt with all the money? And now you're catching up on Torah and wanting to follow the law. W- why now all of a sudden? Why not all the other times you had the chance? Simon? No, no, John, I wanna know. Uh, Mary had horrible trauma. She didn't choose all that happened to her. What's your excuse? What do you want me to say? Uh, I don't know what you want from me. An apology. What? Simon's not wrong. He could be more delicate about it, but... You did choose to work for them. And you made my life even harder than it already was. And you haven't apologized. No, no, don't say it. I don't want you to apologize. It doesn't matter. What would the him say sorry do? I won't forgive it anyway. What keeps putting you in authority? Who are you to forgive or not to forgive? What, you're on his side? Now? No, of course not. But you've had your problems too. What about apologizing for what you almost did to us with their own I didn't go through with it. I was trying to save my family's life, and I love you, John, but that's not something you have to worry about when Zeb and Salome are looking out for you. But you put me in a desperate position where I did things I would never have done otherwise. And I've repented for them, and John and James, I am sorry, but I didn't go through with it.
2: What is your excuse?
1: I was a successful businessman, and yet I was always behind. He wasn't your tax collector. Quit defending him. I want an answer. Hey, you're new. Do you even know what it's like to be Jewish? To suffer for centuries and centuries because of it, but to still commit to it? To protect our heritage even though it never stops being painful? Because the one comfort we have is to know that we're doing it together. That we're all suffering together. But if if we just wait a little longer, if we hold tight just a little more, we'll have rescue because we're chosen, all of us and you betrayed that and you spit on it. I can't forgive it, I'll never forgive it. All right,
2: you said what you needed to say. Sit down, Simon. You sit down
0: first. Conflict within the community of faith would have been inevitable because of the types of people that Jesus was calling together. And in fact, in a few short years, by the time the first church was born, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the first community uh, of Jesus followers, the first church had exploded in in diversity. And you had people from different ethnic backgrounds, different social classes, different parts of the region. Within this one community, within these New Testament, these new churches, you had tax collectors, people who were traders, (laughs) Uh, to the Jewish people. You had uh, zealots, people who were the patriots, who were against the traitors. You had Pharisees, very religious people, and then people who would have considered been sinners, people who didn't care about religion, but who had found and followed Jesus. You had Roman soldiers, you had um, fishermen, doctors, prostitutes, groups of people who otherwise never would have belonged together, who had come together, and therefore conflict, difference, friction was inevitable. It's actually why when you read some of the New Testament letters, the letters that sort of followed the history books in the New Testament, um, where the Apostle Paul and others are writing letters to um, churches, new churches, almost every letter at some point gets to addressing specific issues of conflict within the faith community. One, uh, we're going to listen to one particular section of a letter written by one of uh, you know, Jesus' first sort of apostles and leaders of the church, uh, the Apostle Paul, written to a community in what is now part of modern-day Turkey. And I want you to listen as he begins to lean in and address some of the, the lack of resilience they were having in their relationships. Have a listen.
2: But now is the time to get rid of anger. Rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all of its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your Creator and become like Him. Since God chose you to be the holy people He loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults, and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourself with love, which binds us together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in our hearts. For as members of one body, we are called to live
0: in peace and always be thankful. This young church in the city of Colossae, the region of Colossae, which as I said, is now part of modern day Turkey. They were experiencing hard times with each other. We actually know if you go on in the letter, you'll find Paul getting into the dynamics of relationships in marriage, the dynamics of relationships between parents and children, the dynamics of people in the workplace, and just in general relationships in the church. And this is actually not unique to this letter. We find it again and again. And it's interesting because the first half of this letter is all about uh, what we'd call theology, truths about God and his love for us. And yet so many of the letters eventually get to the very nitty gritty, okay, what does that mean for your life? You know all this stuff about God, which, you know, we can tend to sort of be like, oh, um, being a Christian, being a a follower of Jesus, about knowing things about God. Yes, there's lots of things to know, but there's lots of things to do as the things you know begin to change how you live. And he leans into these relationships. They were dealing with anger, frustration, conflict, unforgiveness, lack of grace, the sins and the brokenness and the failures of each other as they were jammed in together, life together in this community. And they were starting to uh, experience conflict and frustration, and whether for them, but certainly for us now is we have that same thing in relationships where we are in close proximity with others, in marriage, in family, and in our church. Idealism, individualism, tribalism work against us. Idealism says, oh, we, we shouldn't have to go through this. Individualism says, you, you know, you, you don't have to put up with this. this isn't making you happy. Tribalism says, I'm sure we can find another person or another church. And the apostle Paul to them and to us now says, no, don't give up don't walk away. But interestingly, you'll note in the text, he doesn't say, just get through it. Just grind your teeth, bite your tongue, you know, like don't say anything. What does he say? He says, put on your new nature, which is this whole thing about resilience, become someone new. This is an opportunity for you to become someone new, this conflict you're having. And he uses the analogy of clothing, He says, strip off or get rid of all of this kind of rage and anger and gossip and slander and unforgiveness, throw it off like an old garment and put on something new. Now, this would have meant something to them. In our day, where we have closets full of clothes, this idea maybe lacks its, its power. But there, as I said to you a few weeks ago, um, if you were the average person uh, in the near, ancient Near East was not a wealthy person. And certainly in the community of Christ, we know most of the early followers of Jesus were people who were not wealthy. They probably only owned one piece of clothing. It was a tunic. It was what they wore next to their body. And maybe, hopefully, they had a cloak that they could cover themselves, especially at night if they had to sleep outdoors or in tents or whatever, it would get cold in the evening. But when uh, church historians tell us that when people got baptized, they got given a new tunic. So they were, they literally changed clothes. They were given a new, and this isn't just like, hey, they did it for the (laughs) t-shirt, but probably then they might've done it for the t-shirt because that's what you got. No, I'm just kidding. But it was an entirely new piece of clothing. And it's like Paul saying, look down at what you're wearing this new clothing that you got when you were baptized, when you became officially, publicly, a follower of Jesus, why would you, would you go back and get the old sort of probably dirty, probably moth eaten, you know, like one that you wore for too long? Like, no, you, you want to keep the new, you have new clothes on. And he's using it metaphorically to say, that's the same, the same thing is true for you relationally. You're not meant to live in the old ways of slander, gossip, anger. Oh, you said this to me. I'm saying this to you. Oh, you said that I'm cutting you off. Oh, unforgiveness. No, he says, put on the new person, the new way of living. And he goes on to give some examples of what those new clothes or what this new person looks like. And I used the NLT version today when we read it because it is just so, it, it captures one of the most important ideas with this that kind of digs at this issue of idealism. He says, make allowances for each other's faults. In other words, expect that there's going to be fault. Expect there's going to be sin. Expect there's going to be hurt. Expect the mess. Make room for each other's faults. Buffer. You know it's going to happen. Expect it. Don't be shocked. Don't let your idealism get crushed every time someone lets you down or says something that makes you feel, oh, a little bit, did they mean that? Or that you get hurt. It happens in really, It's not okay, but you need to expect it. It's going to happen. You need to make room in this community for each other's faults. And when they come up, he says, Forgive. Forgive. It is going to be easier to forgive if you expect that there's going to be something to forgive, right? If you're so idealistic about how people will treat you in your marriage, in your family, and then certainly in the church, you're going to be shocked when something happens and they sin, when they fail you, when they let you down, when their insecurities or arrogance or pride or whatever gets in the way and hurts you, you're going to be shocked. You're not going to be thinking, says, if you make room and expect it's going to happen, you will be more prepared to forgive because you know they are making room for Your faults, because you know when you get in close proximity with someone, your issues, your stuff is going to affect them too. It's a shot to idealism. But then he says, above all, put on love. This is the clothing you wear, love. And love, remember we said, like when we did the series earlier in the New Year, it's not just a feeling, it's not even primarily a feeling. It is about a choice to put the other person first right? We said the opposite of love is not hate. It's pride, arrogance, or insecurity. It's all about me. Love is a shot to our individualistic perspectives that said the world and there's relationships and everything is about me and it's for me. Love says, no, it is primarily first about the other. And what does it mean to put them first and to think about them first and to serve them first and to put their needs ahead of yours? It is a shot to our individualistic mindset about relationships make room for each other's faults. And when you hurt each other, forgive. And above all, put on love that says, I'm going to put you first. Why? I mean, you know, you kind of know this. You probably know intuitively, yeah, you should do this. Why? He says, because you are a holy people and you are a loved people. And both of those things need explanation. This whole encouragement to be resilient in relationships, was based on the fact, he says, because you are a holy people and because you are a loved people, what does that mean? Holy. What is the word holy? We think, oh, because you're such a good person. Well, clearly that's not what it meant because they were not treating each other very well. That's not what the word holy means. Holy means you are unique. You are different. It actually means set apart or cut away. You are unique. You are meant to be a different kind of people. And one of the best analogies for me that I heard that, I, that I've never forgotten that helps me understand what this means. Craig Van Gelder in his book about the mission of the church says that uh, he grew up in rural Iowa. He said in rural Iowa, is was all farming communities. And he said, farmers are stuck in their ways. They have their equipment, they have their methodology, they have their process, and they don't um, deviate from it. But whenever there were new uh, methodologies, new equipment, new ways of farming that the the state wanted to teach the farmers, they didn't want to adopt it. So they would hire extension agents. And the extension agents would go into a, a given town, and what they would do is they would buy a piece of land right on the main road or main highway that was very visible to everybody else. And they would start to use the new implements, the new methodology, the new equipment in farming, and as people saw they were doing new stuff and the farmers drove by there every day and they would see the better results that that plot of land was getting than their old ways, then they would start to change. That plot was called a demonstration plot. It was like a visible uh, lab, a demonstration of what could be. That's what the church is meant to be. That's what it means that we are holy. It means that we are unique, that God is doing something new in us that grows something beautiful. Remember, resilience is about becoming someone new, becoming something beautiful that demonstrates to the rest of the world, oh, that's what relationships could be like. He says, you're holy. You're not meant to reflect to the world everything that everyone else already does. The world is full of division and conflict. Idealism, individualism, tribalism is ripping our world apart. And that was true then. And it's true now everywhere friends, I believe so many of these things are even attacking the church. The church has become more tribalistic in these days. Oh, are you in this camp or that camp? Do you believe this thing or that thing? Are you for this group of people or against them? And it is dividing the church. And in a sense, the church just looks exactly the same as the world, driven by idealism, individualism, and tribalism. And the apostle Paul says to them and I was, no, you are different. You are meant to show the world where something beautiful grows in your life. And the rest of the world goes, oh, that's possible in a marriage. That's possible in a family. That's possible in a church. Yes. He says, you are a holy people. But secondly, maybe most importantly, you are loved. You live this way because you are a loved people. Loved by who? By Jesus this isn't like, oh, Jesus loves you. It's like, no, the significance of the love of Jesus for you is not just that he loves you, but he shows us how to love. And he actually gives us his ability to love. This just kind of hit me between the eyes in a totally new way. In our last series, we were reading through the gospel of Matthew and in our daily readings, right? We were reading every chapter. We got to the end. And in this famous scene where Jesus is having what's, you know, has now been called the last supper with his disciples and he's having a meal with them and he's, he's telling them that he's going to die. But even more than that, he comes out with something so difficult probably for him to say and them to hear. He said, he's sitting with the 12 of them. One of you is going to betray me to my death. And when that happens, the rest of you are going to abandon me. He told them, this is what we are. These, these were his best friends. These were his family. He loved them, they loved him. They were in such a close community together. and he says, "We're about to go through something really hard, and you are not going to stick around for it." He says, "One of you is going to betray me to my death, and the rest of you, in my greatest hour, my greatest time of need, are going to abandon me." He had just told them that <laughs> and, they, and it probably was made worse by the fact that said, "No, we'll never do that." And he said, "No, you will, you will. It's going to happen." And Right after he said that to them, I read this and I've read it, I don't know how many times, it just hit me so fresh. Right after he said, you're going to be unfaithful and unloving to me. And then he says to them, but here is a new covenant or a new promise of love and faithfulness to you. In response to your unfaithful, unloving friendship, I am making a new promise of love and faithfulness to you. And he said, I'm going to shed my blood. And it's basically saying, I'm going to, this is a blood pact I'm making with you, not your blood, my blood. In response to their unfaithfulness and their unloving friendship, he made a new promise of faithfulness and love. It was Jesus doubling down. Friends, we don't know love like that. And it wasn't just saying, this is how much I love you. Even though you are unfaithful and unloving to me, I am doubling down on my faithfulness to you. It wasn't just to express his love to them. It was because he knew when they left, when they abandoned, and they realized what they've done, his love was making a bridge for them to come home. Because he would not waver in his love and faithfulness, because he made a new promise to them of love and faithfulness. They were able to repent and change and turn from their unfaithfulness and unlove and come home. Friends, that is an incredible kind of love. We don't really know a love like that. And we don't know how to love like that. So I just want to pause here and the band's going to lead us in a song, maybe new to some of you. It's a song uh, and I was actually singing it a few weeks ago and it, and it, it just struck me in a new way. Um, right around the time I was reading this, that it says, I need your love. Like I need water. I need your love. Like I need breath inside my lungs. And you know, we can say, Oh yes, Jesus, give me your love. Love me, love me, love me. Right. We're bottomless pits for love. Yes. Beautiful. But in that moment, I realized, Jesus, I don't have that love in me for others. I don't love them. Like you love me. I need your love. I need to breathe it in so that I can breathe it out. I can't breathe out your love if I'm not breathing it in. It can't flow out of me like living water if it's not flowing into me. I need your love if I'm going to love the people around me. And so just pause and use this moment in saying, yeah, Jesus, I I need a love that can double down like that. Even when others have been unfaithful and unloving to me in my marriage, in my family, in the church. So let's just pause and try to breathe this in and drink it in.
2: Like the rushing wind Would you breathe within my heart Through the raging storm Would you hold me Come and take me over, Jesus, draw me closer to your heart.
0: If you've been a part of the well for any length of time, you know that almost every message at the end of our teaching time, I I give you a next step to consider. Usually something small, you know, try this, read this, watch this, you know, do this. Today, I just felt challenged to invite you into something big and bold to do. To say to you, today is the day to double down on your commitment to love. And and I put a blank there. (laughs) Today is the day to double down on your commitment to love. And and I wanna ask you, who? Who in your life is someone to whom you need to double down on your commitment to make a new promise like Jesus did? Even for someone who has been unfaithful or unloving or frustrating to you. And that may be someone you're married to. It may be a parent or maybe a child. Maybe someone in the faith community someone in the church where your relationship has been strained or you've been frustrated by how they've treated you or how they've not treated you, things they've said, things they haven't said, things they've done. And you have been tempted to shrink back and say, fine, if that's how you're going to be, okay, I'm I'm just going to take a step back or I'm going to walk away or I'm going to give up or I'm not going to give as much. And today I want to challenge you, no, go the other direction, double down. What would it mean to increase your love, increase your grace, increase your sense of wanting to put them first, increase your willingness to forgive them, to serve them, to pray for them, to bless them. And I want you to encourage you when you, if you've identified who that person is, to write it out, like write out, this is my promise to you. And, and you may not give it to them, although if you wanted to, that would be even, that would be even greater But just to say to them this and be specific, this and this and this, this is what it looks like for me to increase, to double down, to make a new promise of love and faithfulness to you. This isn't easy. (laughs) This isn't natural. We all know we should. I didn't tell you anything today. Probably you didn't already know. (laughs) but it's something we are invited to do. It is the way the world begins to see something different in us and it comes from the love of Christ for us. Trevor Noah in his book, Born a Crime, and Nelson Mandela in his book, A Long Walk to Freedom, both write about their experiences growing up in South Africa. Now they're separated by many decades and they're very different types of people. But interestingly, in both books, both of them ask this question, how was it possible that a very small minority of white settlers were able to um, oppress a large majority of the black population, a large black population in South Africa, the black population of South Africa far outnumbered the small minority of white settlers. How was it possible that they were able to subjugate and control and oppress them for so many years? And both of them in their books come up with one of the same answers, division. Mandela and Noah both uh, note how the white settlers took tribalism, the unique differences of each of the tribes and accentuated them, segmented them, separated them geographically, but psychologically, sociologically, culturally in under the guise of we are celebrating your unique differences between you. But they pushed and pressed tribalism in every way they could in order to divide and keep these different groups of people from coming together and rising up against their oppressors. It was division. Friends, when you and I choose to double down in our love relationships, when we double down in our marriages, when we double down in our family relationships, we double down in our church family and say, no, I am increasing my commitment of love and faithfulness to you. We show each other and the world something that is stronger than division. Something that is better.
2: How great the chasm that lay between us, how high the mountain I could not climb in desperation Jesus Christ, my Lord.